Dr. Turek. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. You don't remember me, do you? I don't make these arrangements, Dr. Turek. We're here together. Let's make the best of it. Yes. Mrs. Hendricks? She collapsed and they took her to the hospital. This could be called trying to make things right by you. This is the road you have to travel. Can I help you? I am Mr. Penny. I am Ryan's father. It's a messed up road. I wanted to tell you. I'm all stressed. Don't touch me. Don't touch me, you son of a bitch. I poured my heart out to you and you knew what I was feeling. You knew I wanted to reconnect. But you, you stood there and you pretended and you lied. Oh my God. Are you okay? Yeah. Guy, I really wanted to tell you. Also program. And so what I do is I find guests who have a depth of knowledge, who are experts in their field, who have studied their field. And I have the privilege to have conversations with those guests and I share those conversations with you. And tonight is no exception. My guest tonight on this week in interview is Dr. Peter Sejan. Um, he's no stranger to TDN Radio. He's no stranger to, to this week in interview. And he is our go-to person on most things that has to do with social movement um, maybe some when there's social upheaval, but also when there's a strong component or a strong need for, for law enforcement, for law enforcement, for law and order, uh, and, and that sort of thing. He, he runs the uh, Peaceology Center out of um, where he works in, in Chicago. And so it's a delight to have him back here. Before I, I go to him, though, um, I want, just want to say welcome to the regular listeners. There are some of you who are very, very loyal and regular, and you come back every Wednesday, and I appreciate your, your attention and your company. And if tonight is the first time that you're listening to this week in interview, welcome. And I will say quite openly that my objective is to make you also a regular listener to, to TDN Radio. So, Dr. Sanchez, without taking too much more time, because we had some hiccups up, up front with technology, so apologies to you and, and to the listeners, because we are 12 minutes after, and we usually try to start bang on at 8 o'clock. But a very warm welcome to you back on this week in interview. Yeah, Anthony, thank you for having me. And I am live on Facebook as well. I see some folks join us already. Thank you so much. I look forward to the conversation. Very important one indeed. Yes, and of course... Um, what, what spurred the invitation to have you on this week in interview, of course, is the, the, the happenings that's going on in the U.S. that seems to spill, have spilled to Europe and the Caribbean and Asia and Africa, where we see so many people taken to the streets um, in response to, well, it is sparked by one incident, but it is in response to a systemic and historical um, unfairness that, that is very glaring in the eyes of anybody who don't even have to pay attention. He's just, he's just right there staring us in the face. So, so to set the stage for tonight's conversation, I, I want you to, to take some time uh, and just 
give your perspective on what's going on. Like, like, you know, just give your perspective from any angle, any thought that you have of what we've been seeing over the last two weeks. Yes, Anthony, thank you for this opportunity. Um, uh, I want to, to remind uh, our, our listeners that maybe to me, the most, one of the most interesting things now is that post the George Floyd incident, George Floyd incident, we have some municipalities that are universities that are disconnecting themselves from police services. Some school districts are wandering and are moving towards not having police um, services um, entrusted with the security of their people. Uh, we have persons having discussions about disbanding or defunding entire police departments. And uh, so that it is, it is a very important time, um, almost a time that we have not seen this way in history. And the question is, how did we get ourselves there? And I want to remind um, us all that, you know, the, the model of policing that we have in America and others stemmed from the 1829 metropolitan uh, model of policing that even before itself had histories, uh, even way before in, in, in times AD, from the time we know from the Bible, time immemorial, there's always been some sort of effort of some sort of formal agents having the responsibility to do law and order. And what we see when we look at the history of policing is there's there, there what I call pendulum swings. That on the one time, there is, there, like when we started with, the, with the, the night watchmen and the bobbies in England and so on, there's somewhat of an informal aspect of policing. People can do this themselves. And there's this, this formalization of policing. And there's this informalization of policing. And then we had the professional modeling of policing. Then we have problem solving policing. Eventually we had community policing. And now community policing has been around for a couple of decades. And still we have this ugliness that has been unprecedented when police community policing was supposed to be a solution for this. So the question is when we get, when we move further, where is the pendulum going to swing? And are we just going to say, let's do community policing better or is it time for a new approach? So the one thing that I have to say is that even when you look at crime rates, they go up one year, they go down one year, they may go up and up and then down and down, but it's very seldom that they go up, 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 or down, 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 down. Things fluctuate up and down and they ride the wave of history. So we are at a point of history where we can retrospectively look at this institution of policing, understand its history so we can understand its present, and then we can say, where are we going to be now, later on and what type of important modeling that we need to understand now for the future. And I will be able to to give that, but I just want to give that overview and hopefully we can take that journey in this time that we have uh, left. Yes, so I, I like the way that you that you framed the discussion because tonight my, my topic for tonight in discussion with you is policing. Policing in all aspects that we can get to cover tonight. And policing, uh, based from a background of what, we, of what we've seen now and what brought us to there, uh, and we will spend some time there, but I want to spend a lot of time on how can we extricate ourselves from this monster that we've found ourselves entangled in, in its embrace. Uh, by, by that monster, I mean we are in a quandary. And, and in my introduction to this program, what I said was 
Um, imagine you have a guard dog. You have a guard dog in your yard. You feed that dog, you bring it running, you train it, you everything. And then the guard dog starts to take over the yard where you, in any day that you try to make use of your backyard, you're not sure in what condition that you're going to make it back into your house, whether you're going to make it back in one piece or whether you're going to make it back at all. It, it, it almost comes to the point where you feel like you, you probably would take your chances with an intruder breaking into your property than to, than to, than to trust the guard dog to be, to be useful. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to, 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 to call policemen dogs. It's just an analogy um, because essentially that's what, we, that's what we hope the police would do is to, is to be guards against any threat to us, to our families. As we go about making our lives, we, we want to be assured that there is this, there's this force that we can call on to protect us. And then what we've seen is that more and more that, that force has taken control and, and, and it's difficult to wrest that, wrest that control back away from, from the police force. Uh, so you talk about community policing, and, and, and that is very popular. I live in New York City, where um, when Mayor Giuliani was, was um, mayor, um, Rudy Giuliani, he implemented what was called broken windows. Uh, and people who lived through it spoke about how um, policing was very heavy. You drop a liter on the floor and the police is on you. You cross the street, not on a crosswalk, and the police is on you, and, and, and broken windows. And that went all through the Bloomberg era. And now we have what is supposed to be a liberal um, mayor in de Blasio. De Blasio ended um, broken, um, broken windows policy. Well, he, he ended stop and frisk, but he didn't want to end broken windows. And, and so community policing is, is, is thrown about um, quite willy-nilly. Uh, so I want you as, a, as an expert to let's talk about community policing and more importantly, let's talk about whether we think community policing is still applicable. And if community policing is not applicable, then what is and how do we, what, what other models can we, can we present? Right. Yeah, Anthony, what I would like to do is to take, take us on a little bit of a, of a tour to, mm -hmm. to remember how we even got to community policing. And, and um, you know, I, I teach a whole course on just policing and I can teach a whole year on just policing. So, but I want to give just a, 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 quick, a quick drive through to understand. Now let's first of all say, you know, what, what, what is the purpose of policing in the first place, right? And, and even again, we have to go back to England, we have to go back to 1829, um, 1829. and in fact, when the, the metropolitan um, um, model of policing began, and there were a lot of trials and errors with the night watchmen and with the bobbies and so on, we, we, we see in society that in order for us to keep order in society, it is necessary for us to have a force or a, a, a body of people that are outside of the individual to help the individual manage themselves. So right. we can say, why do we even need law and order? Well, we need that because human beings, uh, 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 any living organism exists to reproduce itself. In order to reproduce itself, it has to stay alive. For it to stay alive, it has to have a good defense system. And, and the way that we are wired is that we are wired to reproduce ourselves 
and we are wired to not look out so much for others, but to ensure that we do not die. Because if we die, our generations will die. So what happens is that there is an internal locus of control that we need to remember others, you know, that to survive. But there's also an external locus of control that is necessary to prevent us from being the only ones that are alive. So in fact, before the criminal law was actually uh, um, developed, people were, were mediating conflicts by themselves throughout. I and mean, with the night watchman, with the bobbies, and um, with the bobbies came a little bit formalized. People were trying to find ways to adjust themselves and how to deal with life. But what happened is that with, when criminal laws became uh, evident, the state was, uh, it, if you did something to me and I did something to you and we go to court, you would pay for what you did to me and I would get the money and we would go like this, right? So I was the victim, but then we had to change with the criminal law where the state becomes the victim. And if I punch you in the face, you may be the physical victim, but then the state becomes the legal victim. And I, would, I pay the state for doing the wrong to you but I do not even really amend with you, right? So right. I, and policing, so policing is part of criminal justice and we have three components of criminal justice. They are law enforcement, courts and corrections. So, the, but the police, the same way like the state is saying, you can use marijuana and you can use all these things and where am I gonna get my money from, right? So if we are fighting with each other and we are mediating our own conflicts, how is the state gonna get its money, right? So that's how the state became kind of the victim so you can go through the state and the state is managing our affairs of conflict resolution and the state has the monopoly on violence to force us to act as its agent. That is to say the state has a very big responsibility to act even better than we would act with and among ourselves. Because the state has said, give up your conflict revolution to me for the most part formally so we can do it. And law enforcement is the way that is the entrance to the criminal justice system where instead of having bobbies and just volunteers and vigilantes, because once you have people that going out, considering the nature of human that I told you about, if people go out, they're gonna do a policing with, with favoritism, right? Vigilantism. So now the, the, a professional model of policing became so that people can learn how to be professionals, to have a professional means of conduct, to have proper ways that we do not um, do favoritism, right? And now that continues to happen, but then when the professional model of policing came, people realize that the police said, no, leave law and order for us, that the police do not understand the community well enough that they, uh, when, they when they go out and they try to uh, solve problems of policing, they do not understand communities and they're causing more problems in the process. So now there became, there are a lot of other models, I'm giving a quick run, there were a lot of other models like problem-oriented policing and some other types of, of, of policing uh, that, came, that came in that regard. But, and then eventually they emerged, you know, close to three decades ago, community policing as an idea. And the community policing is defined as the residents and the police working together to collectively identify, resolve, and solve community problems. And I'm the author of two books that, um, uh, both of which, um, uh, both of which, this one, uh, I'm Lessons from Grand Bay, Prospects for Maintaining Low Crime in Dominican Nature in the Caribbean, that that outlines uh, community policing, the first community policing model in Dominica and, and formerly, in fact, in, the, in, in the, uh, many countries in the Caribbean, formerly, that was implemented in 1997 and the work that we did in Grand Bay. And in my second book uh, here, um, um, Pockets of Crime, that is based on, on the, my work on the south side of Chicago, it helps, you know, I explain some of that in there. So now community policing is the, is the efforts by residents and the community to collectively, well, number one, I identify number two, prioritize, and number three, solve community problems. Now here's the issue. 
I was one of the evaluators of community policing in its, in its inception in Chicago uh, um, for some time when I was at the University of Chicago. And I still liaise and collaborate with others. I still train police officers. I have uh, close to 30 or so police officers that I have trained um, that, and, and that either, and even now I even have a police detective in one of my classes. And I have, um, I think I have 10 students who became police officers um, um, last year, within the last year, either on the streets in Chicago and about five of them outside of the area, right? So the idea of community policing was to be able to, to solve the problem of police officers being so disconnected from the community that they do not understand how to do policing well. Part of the problem of community policing is that sometimes people don't understand what it means. Community policing means that the community policing itself, like how do you make sense of that, right? And in, in the process of doing that, people seem to feel as if the, 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 the police are supposed to, you know, give them a little pass in terms of what wrong that may happen in the community, understand it better. The police believe oftentimes that community policing is a way of trying to make them look kind of soft. But the fact of the matter is that you never, you have many different task force, task force and different components of policing and community policing is one of them. So you have many different departments. So you never, you have people who have different attitudes and behaviors. And then when they, they mix with community policing, sometimes community policing itself is at war within the own police department because some police don't want to do it. Sometimes the chief likes it. The police, so it become a very big community policing has become more of a political manipulation for votes and a nice way to talk about what to do without a lot of manifestation, right? So I mean, there is more to it, but I just want to pause because I don't want to go on too long. So, we, but we came here and we have to question now how good is community policing working, especially in the cities that we're talking about, even in Chicago is one of the models. And we have my, my friends and my, the, the, some people I've, I hired to teach actually police officers. And I am getting the explanation of the things that they've seen in Chicago, besides what happens with the bulls in the nineties that we can talk about rioting and so on and so forth, but they have not seen the city turn up like this. So what, what, could community policing have helped to, uh, to, 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 to address these issues. And why is it that even in the face of community policing being present in those departments, we still have this wickedness that happens and is it time for something else? So we can, we can talk about that time, but I at least just want to give people a little bit of a back history to understand how we got to community policing and the crisis to understand whether or not community policing is capable to, uh, to help us at this point or has the window for community policing even closed at this moment? Right. So. Thank you for that. I mean, it shows the, the depth of your expertise, the familiarity with the topic. And you, you talk about the need for what we would call law and order, uh, developing a set of rules that act as guidelines to keep us not from killing each other. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and then we have laws so that there's some standard with which it's, it operates. Now, we come to the United States, and most, most of us are, are, are familiar with Western movies and, and those kind of things where, where we saw there was a sheriff, and, and there was sort of like a community sense of what is just, to try to determine who did wrong and therefore who was justified in defending themselves. Or if there are two guys and it's it just they happen to be in a, in a situation as long as each of them was given a fair chance, it, it was considered to be a fair outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but but then there's a question of racism where uh, and, and maybe you can you can clarify that a little bit but the understanding that i have is that the the police in the united states evolved um, the current modern day policing evolved from after the emancipation of slavery or even during slavery when um white people white men would get together and basically protect the institution of slavery so would go hunt slaves who ran away would would institute discipline on on, on slaves who bucked the system in an effort to to discourage um, slaves from thinking of revolting against the system. And then once there was no longer slavery, that force um, evolved into I guess, some kind of community um, protection force and then formalized into what we have as the police as the police force. Is that is that sort of like an accurate um, account of the evolution of the police in the United States? Yes, yes, actually. Um... In fact, some of you, uh, excuse the term, but some of you may have word, heard the word hunky being right. referred to refer to white people. Actually, the word hunky came, be, came out uh, from different sources when you read that uh, the first, some of the first models in, in the United States after the emancipation of slavery, a lot of Hungarian immigrants came like, and worked as in, in, in indentured servants. They were you know, a level above slaves. So they were working the land, and then when 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 blacks became free like them, it was not right to a lot of people to have the Hungarians, uh, uh, white people, be kind of on the same level as free blacks, and the, uh, but they were not skilled like the way the other blacks were, and they have the rights and you know kind of the uh, uh, social sophistication, language and social sophistication like other whites did, and the Hungarian, especially Hungarian men. Be, became among the first, the first people tasked as slave catchers. Former slave, well, but well, there were slave catchers during uh, during slavery. But afterwards, they were among the ones that were really playing that role to put the to bring the blacks in order. So they started to refer to them as hungies, 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 and actually hunky came out of hungi, the Hungarian um, huh. um, um, employed slave catchers, right? And you can read that from different sources. The same way, like like necromancy, was the the the, the practice, the spiritual practice that our lot of ancestors um, used in Africa. And necromancy is they claim to be the studying of the dead or the worshiping of the dead. But that's not what we as African people do worship the dead. We just realize that there's a connection between the living now and those before us, right. and we acknowledge those before us who, were, of course, most of them are dead. And then we appeal, like I appeal to my ancestors. I have I have this pad here that at certain times, uh, there's some very controversial things I'm dealing with. Right there, I get on my knees and I pray to my God, but I also appeal to my African ancestors and even my living elders to give me the spirit of discernment to deal with some of the things that I'm dealing with as an African person and knowing about our African heritage. So necromancy, when uh, during the slavery, the Portuguese, Portuguese trade and the Spanish, came into and started called Negro because necromancy was like the, the like the Christians, right? But the Negroes were like the necromancy practicing religion people. And then it, it matched with our black, darker skin that's a negro, negro that looks like black. So refer to us as black and then Negro and then nigger and then, you know, Negro and so on. So it's very important for us to understand the historical origins of words because as the fear world's hypothesis in sociology tells us language is almost everything. 
And we have the symbolic interactionism theory that tells us we need to make a lot of, 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 of meaning, of, of, we have to look at meanings and symbols in society, right? So, so I want you to say that, yes, so what is the symbolism and the meaning if we were to take a symbolic interactionist approach of policing? And policing became in the United States, besides the metropolitan model of policing, working as eventually when we tried to figure this out, we, we went to the metropolitan model of policing, but before then, the idea of policing started off as regulating free slaves, a lot of whom did not even know the laws because a lot of them couldn't read. But now people had to try to keep them in order. And then the first set of people that were, that were regulated, I started in England as the first set of police came from the Bobbies and the Night Watchmen and eventually emerged. But then in the United States, the first set of people that began doing policing or law enforcement were, were a lot of Hungarian men that were trying to keep the slaves in order. And if you notice, if you go in the South and you, sometimes you go in the suburbs, you see people walking on the streets. They're not walking on the sidewalk. And you're like, when did people walk in on the sidewalk? Well, a lot of them, there were no sidewalks where they were. So they were used to walking on the streets. And even on the times when there were sidewalks, they still didn't register that this sidewalk is for them to walk. And whenever they walk on the side, on the street instead of the sidewalk, they got tickets and they got, you know, they got brutalized and so on. So that is important to understand that the first aspect of policing in the United States in, 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 in part of, of keeping high, um, white hegemony, keeping white, white domination and keeping, keeping white supremacy was to keep people in order who were ignorant of the laws that whites had already set up of protecting themselves uh, in that regard. So you're right in that aspect of history. And so, and so this is so so what you're saying is is very interesting because when we look at policing in the US, we see police when they encounter a black person, mm -hmm. they they see their role as to bring that person into check and to subdue that person and to and to exercise power over that person. And yet when we see the the same police, the same police department, when they interact with a, with a white person, we see a completely different um, demeanor, a very different action. We, for example, we, we see a lot of videos where, where a white person is, is struggling and fighting with the police, whether they be they intoxicated or whether they just don't want to be arrested at the, at the moment or whether they feel like that police should, should not have the right over them. And we never see the police reach for their guns. They don't even draw their guns as a means of, of, of saying, hey, I have a gun, so stop. They don't even do that. But yet we see time and time and time again that black people get killed because somebody was going to take their phone out of their pocket. Somebody, the, the police ask a person for their driver's license and they reach over to get their driver's license on the passenger seat or God forbid in the glove compartment and they get gone down. And, and I know they're racist um, people, but it, it happens too often. It's too late for it not to be something that is baked into, into the system. And, and, and then on top of that, we see the unequal um, application of consequences. So, so uh, 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 let's 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 assume for a moment that uh, a cop accidentally killed uh, a black person. Immediately, that cop is let go. 
if a cop accidentally kills a white person, there's usually some kind of arrest, some kind of investigation, his day in court, and that sort of thing. So the system, not, not even on an individual basis, the system itself expects to be applied differently uh, for, 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 that, for, for us as Black people and for, and for, and for, and for a group of, of Europe, people of European descent. So as a person who is involved in training police officers, how do you even start to approach it? And I haven't even spoken about the unconscious bias of that individual or the conscious bias of that individual. So, so that, that is just, that's just even adding more fuel to the fire. I'm talking about the system of policing that, that somebody is going into and the person doesn't have any particular conscious malice towards, towards black people. But they are going into a system where anytime you go into a system, you go into a new job, you go into a new system, there, there are cultures and customs that you learn. And so well, your, yeah. your trainees are going to go in there. How do you how do you prepare them so that they can deal with that and, and maybe think before they act um, instinctively? Very good. Now, now Anthony, uh, I'm going to take the liberty to talk to you from my posture as a social scientist, right? And, and to tell you how we use social scientific tools to address that very important question that you ask. You give us very important evidence, very important data. I have seen videos where white police officers wrestled in the police department a white man with a knife that was uh, attempted to stab them. They got them off the, uh, uh, get it off his hand, they wrestled him down, they didn't even punch the guy and did things to him or whatever. I saw another video where this other white man was pulled over by a white woman uh, and a white man, I believe. And he actually took the gun out, the holster out of, of the, the gun. He punched the police in the face and he actually got in his vehicle and drove away. And they, right. they had weapons that never shot at him, right? We see over and over police officers wrestling uh, uh, big white guys, little white guys. You saw a video of a picture of a police officer and, uh, addressing, um, arresting a white guy who may have even uh, killed people and given right. him water to drink, right? right? So, so you are pointing at this evidence and you're asking me, Doc, how do we make sense of that? And when you train police officers as a black, as a black man, and you know Chris Bugunu and others are asking about how we relate to the Caribbean and for us as Caribbean men and as black people, we also want to relate it to our plight and we want to re re relate to the Caribbean context. So here's how I train my police officers to understand this issue so they do not become problems on the other end when they go there. In sociology, it is, and in social science, it is very important for us to have conceptual frameworks for us to understand things. Because when we have conceptual frameworks, it, uh, they allow us to be able to put things in little bins and to examine them on their own accord, and then we can cross-examine them across each other. So what I teach them is that there are three major um, um, uh, theoretical perspectives that are important to understand this thing. One of them is called structural functionalism, one is called conflict, and one is called interactionism. And what and there's one that there's feminist and there's also postmodernism, right? So these are ways that we can look at the world in different ways and say, if I looked at this from the side of this or the side of that or the side of this, how do I understand it? And when I put it together, how can we make the world a better place? So very briefly, structural functionalism argues that society is made up of consensus, that the laws and the rules that we see 
are reflections of us agreeing that this is what we want for ourselves. The police department that we want, the 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 ten the the, the ten hundred to one a disproportionate um, sentencing for crack cocaine and whatever it is that there's a consensus and and the, and and the symbolic interaction uh, and the structural functionalists say that society is made up of systems. And in order to manage system, we have a police system, law and order, we have a family system, we have a church system. And if the systems function right, then we will not have problems in society. So we ought not go up against the system, we ought to go up against the way the system has been manifested. And we should believe in the status quo, we should not rock the boat. Because if we give the system a while, the system will work itself out. That's structural functionalism. Uh, the other is conflict theory, and the conflict tells us that that people in power make the rules and they make the laws, and they make the rules and they make the laws to benefit them. So there is no such thing as supporting the status quo because you will never get your fear day in court, because those who make the rules will make the rules for them to be able to win all the time. Right. And then we have the symbolic interactionist theory that tells us that what we need to focus on is not about consensus or conflict but on how people make meaning and look and develop symbols in life. So what is the symbol of policing? What is the symbol of someone who has my complexion? What is the symbol of a young, I just saw a young teenage black boy, a young boy, I don't know if he's a teen yet, that is uh, pulled by a security guard somewhere and then police officers, two women roughing him up and came, come at him. And I mean, that's just stuff that I say, if there was a little white kid, would they respond? So when you see a black person walking, as a police officer, as just a regular student of mine that's not yet a police officer, how do you make meaning of someone who looks at me? Forget I'm your professor. But if I'm just walking on campus, and when I go out with my students and I dress like them, no one would think I'm the professor of the class. They just think I'm an old student. So what do, how do you make meaning out of blackness? How do you make meaning out of male blackness? And how are you going to purge yourself of that prejudgment, of that prejudice that allows you to maybe put your, get yourself in trouble. That is, that, that's part of what I like with the symbolic interactionist approach. If we were to take the structural functions approach, we'll say, it's not the people, it's, the, it's not the system, it's the people, let the system work, it will work. Well, good luck. If we take the conflict perspective, we say, well, we have to protest. We always have to protest because if we do not protest, uh, uh, all right, I'm, I'm look, I mean, one of the books that is very in, in instructive uh, in, in helping us understand this piece is talking about injustice and the social basis of obedience and riots, right? And of course, there's a difference between uh, civil disobedience and peaceful protest and, and rioting. But the, the fact of the matter is that what I teach students is that there are multiple ways of looking at this issue. And depending on how you look at it, you may see it for different ways. But specifically, let's talk about the symbolic interactionist and the conflict approach. Oh, by the way, the feminist approach is simply to indicate that we have to look at power of race. You know, we have to look at the domination of of of, uh, of uh, gender in this issue. But also, there's womanism that is a component of feminism that says that we have to look at race, class, and gender everything together. Because oftentimes, when people go and talk about racism or they talk about issues about gender, white women benefit more than anybody else. And when black folks go out and change the laws, oftentimes for minorities. Uh, women, white women, and Asians benefit more than we do. So we die and they benefit. And oftentimes Asians are oftentimes silent about this. So I'm just saying that it's important that I put in these things together and to say, okay, now I'm saying to my students, how are you going to be a, a, a good police officer in this type of world? What are you going to try to understand? The postmodernist approach tells us 
that that we that the world function based on ambiguities we think we know that this person is a racist we think we know that this person is a drug addict we think we know that this black person is dangerous but we are not sure but how do you make decisions on the times of ambiguity so postmodern theorists would say that we have to look at how people make decisions in times of ambiguity now what makes it ambiguous for this man who had his his knee on george's neck to believe that even with handcuffs on his hand, even with four other police officers there, even if him saying I'm through, and if him having a gun in his hand and he's so comfortable that his hand is in his pocket, what is the ambiguity that makes him believe that it's still okay to keep his knee on this person's neck? What is this threat that Judge Freud could have been that creates a symbol for this police officer that it's okay to continue doing so? In that regard, we have the classical theory that tells us that human beings are rational actors that weigh the cost and benefits of the actions. And when they believe that the cost will be higher, they are less likely to act. And when they believe that the, that the benefits are higher, they're more likely to act. So if we look at the classical theory, we'll say, what made this white police officer believe that his name on this, on, this, on this guy, he could get away with it? Well, he has done this many times before, right? He may get away with it, he's just a black guy. And the thing about it is, Anthony, we are more likely to kill the things that for which are the lives we do not value. So, so can I stick a pin in there? Um, yeah. Because you, you talk about cost and benefit. Right. And I think that I think that, that is so key because right. um, I work with some people sometimes and you 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 see the the privilege seeping out of them. And and if you privy to their conversation when they they feel like they they're among their peers um and you see the high fives and the pat on the backs and the job well done you my understanding of that whole thing is that there there is a community out there where somebody like that gets prestige because he is able to in broad daylight kill kill a black person and be so comfortable with it and have that 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 balls so to speak that even if he's being recorded he knows that there's no consequence so from from me watching the video in my mind there's no doubt that this man knows that he's going to kill this guy so so if we talk about ambiguity in my mind i don't think there was any ambiguity in his mind that this guy was a threat or or whatever or whatever that this man was posing in the in the act of murdering a black man and communicating that here I can do this in public and I know I'm going to get away with it. And and I'm going to get cheers from my from whoever my crowd is, whoever I want to feel important among them. And and so with that with that idea of cost and benefit, where we've 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 gotten society to where the cost of being brutal to a black person is so low, and the upside, the benefit from among your peers is so high. Then we see that we see that that calculus taking place, that calculation taking place, where the life of a black person is not is not valued at all. Um, but if you want to continue and say anything else, you can. Before before we go on, I want to um, just I want to announce something for TDN for those of you that joined us late. 
Um, you're listening to this week in interview. Uh, my guest tonight is Dr. Peter Saint-Jean. I always describe him as a peaceologist because um, that's what I remember. He's always advocating for peace. And in a while, I'm going to ask him about his opinion about um, peaceful demonstration. Uh, but but um, I want to I want to tell you about a program that we have coming up on TDN Radio. I'll just read it to you. Patrick Roland John, former Prime Minister of Dominica, oversaw Dominica's independence. Yet within six months, his administration collapsed. This Thursday, so that's tomorrow at 10 a.m. on tdnradio.net, in association with Alex Bruno, will present the only live interview with Mr. John, in which he tells his side of the story. Join us for a full two and a half hours. Shocking revelations will come. So tomorrow, tomorrow at 10 a.m. on tdnradio.net, tune in. We're going to have a live interview of um, that Alex, well, not a live interview. So it's a recorded interview that Alex Bruno had with um, Patrick Roland John, the prime minister that took us um, into independence. If you can, um, I, I want you to, to, to tune in. Um, of course, I'm we're sure we'll have the podcast available. One other announcement I want to make is that we have a young Dominican um, lady in New York who's organizing uh, an at a mixer, a poetry mixer on June 20th at 7.30 p.m. It's going to be a Zoom, a, a Zoom um, party, as they call it. She's going to bring poets and writers. And, and so, so Annette, we had her on. She's a, she's a brand new author. I had her on a few weeks ago to promote her, her book. So um, tune in to TDN Radio or, or go to Annette, um, Annette Philip um, Facebook page and, and learn more about it. She's going to have a poetry mixer. This is a young lady who is very dynamic. She did that mixer last year in Brooklyn and had a tremendous response. And this year, because of COVID, she couldn't have it live, but she's having it as a Zoom party on Saturday the 20th. All right, so let's get back to our discussion. We're discussing policing. We're discussing, um, uh, you know, what 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 systems, what behavior, what policies can we put in place uh, to to have better outcomes for for black people when they find themselves interacting with the police. But uh, uh, right now, we cannot ignore the amount of protest that is happening, and and we see a lot of focus on the one percent or the point five percent of the protesters who are. Who are, who are burning um, cars or, or vandalizing property, quote unquote, who are being violent. Um, I, I, I know you are a very strong advocate for, for nonviolence and, and for, I don't know if you want to, if you call it peaceful protest, but definitely from, from listening to you, I know you don't condone any sort of, um, you know, vandalism or, or violence, and I'm going to ask you to to, to talk about that in a, in this current context, where I am of the opinion that people started protesting peacefully, and there were three days of marches and whatever it is, and nobody was making a move to hold um, the the policemen accountable for 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 Floyd's death, and and. People were taking, I guess, the usual approach. These people, they have energy, let them burn their energy, and then we'll go back to business as usual. And, and in, from that perspective, I think that the damage of property and the 
and the rage, the expression of rage in a physical way um, was necessary to, to, to tell the powers that be, you need to listen to us. As a person who's advocating peace and who advocates non-violence, uh, what is your um, opinion of what happened? And how can we uh, use nonviolence in a situation where we met with so much brutality and so much force um, to and, and still work towards our our objective? Yes, yeah. I'm going to answer this question, but I also want to make sure that we make some time because I'm 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 live and I know we're not taking in calls. But when a lot of times when we go live, sometimes people, especially for me, a lot of people participate because they have questions that they can ask and. I'm no, sure. If people are asking you questions and you want to answer one or two yeah. of them, so if we don't, share, share the question with the audience. And then you I can wanted to like, see Chris Bugano has asked since the beginning. Chris Bugano, a, a fellow um, 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 uh, um, veteran uh, in the Caribbean, our, our, our police officers don't carry guns and uh, police is, is just, um, if not more effective, but uh, to say that the Caribbean police don't need more training is not. So he's probably saying, well, what is the what is the value of guns or carrying guns? Maybe in peacekeeping, he's probably asking that. And if the police in a Judge Floyd case wasn't carrying a gun, outside, uh, outsiders would have stepped in to help. Um, he's saying that point. Um, Didi Easter, good evening, to great discourse and so on. Chris says again, it's, inter um, it's, it's introduced from, academy, um, from, from the academy when I decided to join uh, a police right after my military career, and he went on that he it was taught some things, um, basically more or less the use of force in any circumstances. In other words, always take charge of control and so on. It's about the use of force, weapons and so on, police. That's Chris Bugano. I'm just trying to read. We won't go through all of them, but I'm just trying to at least get the context. Police and training should include every aspect of our community, religion, business organization, so on. Hey, Doc. I, I also need you to explain the laws under the Caribbean policing and govern its um, comparison to the US, the Britain, Britain, um, and do you believe we should we should change our laws in particular in Dominica? And Chris Bugano also asked, are we only discussing policing in the US because our police officers and the citizens in Dominica are all black? Ah, can we just get um, an overall explanation of community policing on the breakdown of what it means to to protect and save. That's very important. If everybody is black, does police brutality still exist? How do we look at that? Uh, in the subject and had involves police globally or is it only in America? All right, so this seems to be, and Chris asked again, why are we speaking of policing in black and white? We don't have white police officers in Dominica. Well, we're not just talking about Dominica, bro. And then um, Gordon Henderson said, we tend to kill what we do not value. Uh, sound logical to me, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and this trade, um, DD says again that the training techniques must be reviewed. I can't be, uh, it can be business as usual. Uh, deadly force is is um, something avoid at all costs. The mayor of Houston has signed the executive order to state that the uh, bill roll out our cities uh, must follow suits and the extended and the. Um, they extend it statewide until the 50 states and so on. Good. Um, Chris Bugunu says, and I will try to wrap up here, uh, uh, but Didi, uh, there seems to be responding to somebody who spoke. And, and then he says, I guess Caribbean community policing and American policing are different. He asked Chris Bugunu. And then lastly, Didi says, uh, 
this will um, reverberate um, um, globally just as the current uh, protest actions and so on and so forth. So the, the, some of the viewers are having dialogue. Yeah, so I okay, so- I so, want to get the gist of yeah. it to respond briefly. So I, I get the gist of it. So, so let us take some time and juxtapose Caribbean policing in the context of what we're seeing. And um, the important issue where we have an all black police force and we have a population that's 99% black, how does that dynamic work? So spend a little time and, and deal with that because I really want to have some time and we have some, we'll have some extended time where I wanted to address the, the, the idea, the tension between peace, peaceful protests. And so we'll, we can come back to that but let's talk about, um, bring it in the context of the Caribbean people for the Dominican people. So I will talk beyond the Caribbean because when I went to Brazil to help the police, there were the police brutality and murders. When I was in Japan and I, I, I helped and, and worked with people with the Coban system, when I was in Norway, when I was in the Netherlands, you know, when I get to Canada, right? Uh, when we'd spend time in The Hague, all of these places that I have participated, continue to participate in Jamaica, in St. Lucia, in Trinidad and Tobago, in, in St. Kitts, and there's different places that I participate. Policing is essentially the same. Law and order is essentially the same. There are criminal statutes that forbid, a crime is an act that violates the criminal statutes of the jurisdiction where the acts occurred. And there are people who are formally responsible and professionally trained to, to be able to exercise discretion, to, to look at the evidence initially to know whether somebody violated the criminal statutes of the jurisdiction where the crime occurred. They are called law enforcement agents. They have police, we have them on federal, state and other levels. So everywhere police are charged to enforce the acts that are under criminal statutes or misdemeanors and so on and so forth. Everywhere in the world, it is that way. Though police officers respond different, differently to different people, yes. Um, do police, are some police officers, uh, some police departments too closely tied with politics and too, tie, too closely tied with positions of power? Are the police there with their power to, own, to, to fairly um, dispense the law? Yes, but do they fairly dispense the law? No. Is it possible that there could either be that there could be some sort of racism, some sort of colorism, some sort of classism, some sort of ism in a police force where the race is controlled and the same, but might relate it to police brutality in the same way like black and white violence? Yes. So in the case in 1974 and others where you could shoot the dreads, just think about this, man. You can just shoot a man with dreadlocks, with Rastafarian hairstyle, with no question. Right. And when you have the fire bombing of a home on Christmas, right, and you have people discussing this issue, what happened in Don Emmanuel, and you have the people who are accused of doing it or suspected of doing it being people in positions of power. And when you have crazy things happen in the CID's office with the investigations and with who is saying that things shouldn't happen, when you have lawyers who have um, engaged in pedophilic or, 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 or um, as, um, disgusting sexual actions and when the legal fraternity is, is trying to protect those people, when you have people who suspect corruption and, and, and suspect wrongdoing in the state, and then you have to rely on the same people you are accusing to give you the right to investigate them, are you going to have injustice, right? What is the symbolism of people who show their weapons or show their muscles if they are part of government or if they are part of opposition? So yes, in, even in a place like Dominica, when we have all of us looking the same, 
Why is it that the police in Marigot, uh, from the 2nd of December of 2019 to the 5th of December, up to the morning of the 6th almost, that you had protests in Marigot where the police commander was almost helped to the point almost like he was, he was not a hostage, but he could have been a hostage. And the police bulldozer in Marigot, while the police officers were on there, guys threatened to go to get gasoline and to get uh, um, kerosene and to burn the, the, the bulldozer that the police were on in Marigot. And they, threat, they were in the spade of the bulldozer and there were police officers on the bulldozer with live weapons and not one person in Marigot got shot. But in Salisbury, where some things had happened and where supposedly people blocked the road and where nobody was doing the extent of what was the threat that was happening in Marigot, because we had a commander that understood the community better, we had external police that came from outside, acted like colonials, almost like the whites that do not know the black community, and shot what some claim to be live bullets. And I saw the tear gas and I saw the rubber bullets and the damage that was done from a distance that they shot into this community. We have these two different ways of responding to the same black people, but we have a different atmosphere. So yes, there are differences. So, so when we talk about this, yes, we are talking about this because we're talking about America, but what I want you to understand fundamentally is that if you value people's lives the same, and if you respect people the same, you will respond and treat them the same. But when you value their lives differently and you value them differently, you will use the law instead of protecting them to oppress them. And it doesn't matter what your color is because some racist cops, some black cops actually may treat white people better because they have been brainwashed to believe that white lives matter more. And they might be able to, to go out there and try to brutalize a black guy because they may want to prove that, that black guys may not get away with it or whatever it is, or they may have bought into the, the ideology of racism so badly that they too are racist and do not believe that black people that are, cannot be racist. Racist simply means that you believe that some races are more superior than the other, period. If I believe that Asians are superior to Latinos, I am racist. If I believe that Blacks are superior, I'm racist because all people are equal. So yes, so Chris, this is my way of saying that if you listen carefully, we can discuss specifically about the Caribbean and I can talk about how police brutality happens and why some people like Rastafarians or people that are considered to be the least of these or people that are not in positions of power, how they, um, how they respond. I'm writing some chapters. I, I'm pub I just published a piece. I'm publishing another piece. And I'll be publishing something from my, my December work um, from sometime soon. So I just wanted to, uh, to, uh, to answer that, Chris. Within the issue of guns, real quick, that weapons, uh, uh, um, different departments have weapons. And people talk about that. It can be another show. But the brief answer is that I'm not sure that the gun was enough to restrain people. Um, from just because the officer had a gun, because other people could have guns as well. Maybe it could have been. And I'm not saying if the police, because police officers sometimes need weapons, because when we train police officers, we teach them that depending on the level of, of danger that they face, first of all, their very presence can be forced, their voice can be forced, their demeanor can be forced, the advance can be forced, and then you have different levels of lethality from a, a basically baton to a taser and those types of things all the way up to a gun. So it doesn't mean that, so, so where there are no guns, it could sometimes help to have a kind of a peaceful environment maybe because in, in correctional facilities, that's why the officers don't carry guns because an inmate can take it and it creates a, a culture of gun using. So we can talk about that to some degree, but I hope that in the interest of time, um, Chris said, thank you, doc. So maybe Chris is, is satisfied for now with my response. We can go a lot more in depth, but I believe I gave him enough. Yeah. Uh, because. Go. You, no, answer your question. No, what I was saying is that um, 
the, the way we were discussing, although we were talking about the US, my sense was that um, we were trying to communicate the function of the police and the way you were bringing it out, to me, it could be transplanted anywhere in the world where you have a community and you have a force that is tasked with helping to protect, protect them from each other. And, and so I, I think you clarified it and, and I'm happy that you, you actually pointed out that the, that the audience had those questions and, and you dealt with those questions because I, I, from, and you can correct me if, if, if I'm misinterpreting, but I'm understanding that the, the policing system starts to get um, corrupted when the police is seen as an enforcement arm of the government or the powerful or some advantage group. At that point in time, objectivity and fairness will not prevail because your, your priority is to maintain the interests of that, of that privileged group, whether because of politics or culture or ethnicity or whatever. And that's what I'm getting from what, from what I heard you say. That, so it doesn't matter whether it's a black police and a black citizen, it's a perception in that police mind as to what is his function. So when a police department moves away from a function of keeping law and order to a function of protecting the interests of anything other than the people, we have that. Um, so am I, am, I, am I interpreting the understanding Yes, you, you understand it quite well, because in essence, I'm saying that if the police are there to enforce the law and they're professionals to do that, they can afford, because discretion is the most important thing in policing. And when I teach my students in ethics, I teach them about how to handle discretion. Because a police can arrest you or not arrest you. And if they showed up and the police didn't arrest you or charge you or so, or they just turned a blind eye, you wouldn't even know the crime occurred. It's very, very important, right? And then if they go, how are they going to use that discretion? Now, it depends on how the political system is, how they line up, who's putting pressure on them, we can have in, and who they believe are valuable and not valuable regardless of who they are it happens in norway it happens in sweden it happens in africa it happens in asia and in japan sometimes we can talk about my experiences in japan and with the koban system and so on and so forth right so so you got it very well and i think we've summarized and we can expand another show just on that but i think you've understood it student chris bugano you know um is satisfied with the response so uh, we're giving them a little buffet, you know, a little buffet. So we can right. probably, mm -hmm. if you all lead, I will move on to answer the next set of questions. Sure, sure, sure. Let's talk about um, the type of protest. Is there, is in your mind, is there ever a place for that kind of, what you call enforcement or, or expression of rage? Um, anything other than nonviolent and, and, and peaceful um, civil disobedience? In your mind, is there ever a time um, where, that, where that's applicable. Yeah, first of all, let me first of all, let you know that I have a problem with the term nonviolence. Okay. Nonviolence in a, in a misnomer. I feel we need to get rid of the term because nonviolence does not get at the core of our understanding of what we're really saying. Because we have just like terrorism, a war on terrorism. Have you ever heard anything good about the terrorist? <laughs> have you ever heard anything good about violence? Well, let me tell you this. If there is a woman by the name of Cario Horn, a police officer, a hero in Buffalo, New York, who when Neil Mack was being attacked by police officers, this little sister, I say little because she's short, she jumped on the police officer's back. That was a violent act because a violent act is defined as an act 
that causes harm or makes contact that is not that is not legitimized or not authorized against someone, right? So if you jump on someone's back, unless you're playing horsey with them or playing around, if you had an intention to harm them, hurt them, or to restrain them, that is an act of violence in the pure definition of violence. Right. I endorse 100% what she did, even if she faced. Now, this woman has lost her retirement and all that. Just look up Carriol Horn in Buffalo, New York, right? Um, now, so 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 if we just, if we say that violence is is an act that causes harm to another person, whether it's physical, emotional, social, and so on, and we should forbid all acts of violence. I have a problem with that. In fact, I had such a problem with that that when I went in 2018 to, to and I was invited um, um, by Manda Apte and others and Deepak to go to to India, to go to the same place where Martin Luther King and Manson Mandela and others went to study from people who do Jainism and so on uh, in, in Gandhi's footsteps to learn about nonviolence from Gandhi and from Jainism and so on and so forth. There was, there's an interesting adage that while I was there, I wanted to come back to the United States for language that is better than violence because violence, once you say violence, everybody assumes now automatic bad. So I said to the, to the gurus in India, Explain to me, because this violence doesn't make sense. How, do, how did Gandhi deal with this issue of nonviolence? What is that? And then um, 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 Manda said to me, Gandhi actually never used, um, he used violence and nonviolence to get people to understand the complexity of a word called ahimsa in Hindu, in ahimsa. Ahimsa is unconditional love. So right now, Anthony, if I punch you in the face, and I said, dude, you are handsome. I like your Afro, man. You are handsome, dude. And you are bleeding and you're crying. That's not violence. But if I punch you in the face and I say, you're ugly or whatever it is, that is violence. So I said to the guru in India, now who gets to call the shots? Is it the person who is doing the violence that calls the shot and say, well, I didn't intend to call you ugly. I punched you in the face because I like your Afro. Or is it the person that said, I slapped you because I think you're ugly? And they say, well, you know, that's a good question, Peter. I say, yeah, I know it's a good question. Answer it. How would Gandhi answer it? Say, well, it's about the actor. So I said, well, how can the actor get the say in saying how the victim should be characterized in terms of their victimization? Uh, so what is the so in so what I actually have created a, a matrix that I call Zwapam that really says that uh, that that we have to look at the actions of the doer and the, the perception of the receiver. So if the doer intended to do harm and the, and, and the receiver perceive harm, then that is, that, is, that is most problematic that something bad will happen. But if the doer does something that they intended harm, but the receiver did not perceive harm, that's one thing. And if the doer did something that they did not intend harm and the receiver perceived the harm, that's something else, right? And then you can do something that neither person saw it. So if you are talking about causing harm to someone, it's a lot more complex than a linear relationship. It's more of a curved linear relationship. So I do not, I actually, I'm, I'm writing a piece on my lawyers. Um, I have applied for the application of my, the terms that I've protected intellectually. But in my teaching of peaceology, I go away from violence and nonviolence because it is a black and white, left and right. It is inadequate to express the complexity of causing harm to others. Now, having said that, the same way like they had Prince, who was the artist formerly known as Prince, in the symbol, I will talk about that thing formerly known as violence. Let me tell you this, Anthony, I have a young, beautiful wife. I have three biological daughters and I have other non-biological daughters. I have a son. 
I am a veteran of the United States Army. If you decide that you are going to harm my wife, my children, my family, my students, or anybody where I am present, and I perceive that my life or the life of anybody with whom I am charged to protect is about to be lost, I will not be concerned about your life when I respond to you. That's what I'm telling you. And I will have intentions to destroy you if you are trying to destroy me. And if I don't destroy you, you ought to come back and harm my wife and my children. I will try to destroy you. And I am a man of peace. In fact, the law gives me the ability to sanction violence. I can kill you and face no charges if I am justified. We can bomb people in war. And that's what just war is. If, we, if our actions, our inactions would cause our death more so than our actions being callous, we are justified. So I am not into this thing about violence and nonviolence. And I'm not into this thing of people just calling the name violence and not problematizing it because I am going to defend myself. Now, let me give you another adage. When I was in India, I was sitting in the Jain temple and the Jainism, the Jainis, the Jain, Jainism refers to the, the, the culture that is so anti-violent that they try not to even step on an ant. They will mm, not even kill something for real. Eh? <laughs> for real, that, and Gandhi was a part of that. It was a major part of the Gandhian approach. And I said to the guru in the Jain temple in India, what does the most advanced Hindu or Jainist idea think about this thing called violence? And here's the adage that the guru told me. He said, there is a Hindu mystery that says that there was a man, a soldier who had a gun and he had a gun and he was going to kill somebody. And he came to the guru and said, is it wrong or violent for me to kill that man? And the guru said to him, why are you hesitating to kill the man? Is it because you are a coward and you're afraid to do the right thing? Or is it because you believe the killing of the man is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so you see that the guru, the most peaceful, the most peaceful religion is saying that, that there are circumstances where you could end someone's life and it is not violence. It is not wrong. And if it is not wrong and violence is a labeling for everything that is wrong, I have a problem with violence. Having said that, when we talk about nonviolent protests, what are we talking about? Nonviolence is a specific technique that King, Gandhi, Mandela, and others use, where the idea is that when you come up against a, the power, power concedes with nothing without a demand. And then you have to be able to force power to see it's wrong. It's not going to happen without a high cost. And what is that high cost? That you have to be willing to stand the discipline of having the power structure cause harm against you while you're not causing harm against it because you will never win against it. And then by you enduring the fire hose, by you enduring those, those dogs biting you, that's when the president said, this is wrong. But if you shoot back at the police while the dogs are backing you, if you go and you burn down buildings, you are diluting the power of nonviolence. And when we train people in nonviolence, we treat them how to withstand torture. We teach them how to withstand being spit in your, spat in your face. And we teach them how to speak up, but not to give the enemy our so-called wrongdoing that's against the law to be able to use that against us to lose. Because the idea of civil disobedience and the idea of civil protest is that we choose a law that is unjust. 
and we go out and we disobey that law or we cause disruption so we can go to court so we can win the case from the other side. Now you can go to court by a suit as well. You don't have to necessarily get arrested, you understand? But the idea of not destroying things and destroying people in the protest is that you do not want to distract energy away from the point that you want to make because people are going to use your wrongful action as a way of undermining you and destroying that which you are seeking. In other words, you have to be smarter than that. And there are people who may go out and burn and all that, but that's not what we're doing. We're going to withstand. When, when Rosa Parks was told you can't go to the back of the bus, she sat there. And then a lot of blacks in America went to sit in, the, in white restaurants and when they were arrested and pulled, they didn't fight back. When they were arrested, the lawyers were already waiting, the children were taken care of, and when they went to change the law. And that's what Mandela used and that's what Gandhi used. Whenever you, you submit to the violence and the wrongful actions and the brutality of the oppressor, you are not going to win the oppressor at the game that the fight that's already fixed. But when you, when you do not respond violently to them, you mess up their game. And then you, 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 you appeal even to that conscience that they hardly have, you have a better chance to appeal to the conscience and you have a better chance of building constituents, objectors and objective constituents and other people who may not themselves feel what you feel, but are going to support you because they see what you're enduring. And that is why so much, Anthony, as I close, that it is so important that we make the distinction between the rioters and protesters, because the protesters are oftentimes led, they have a system and they want to change a law. And if you look at the amount of, of legislative changes and the amount of um, police practices that have been changed because of that, a lot of that has happened because people are able to distinguish between protesting and against, and, 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 and against rioting. And I'll tell you this, if and when I participate in a protest, you better be assured that I have people around me that are ready to break some bones if they need to break some bones. Because I want to go back home to my family. Now, the idea is not that you go out there and you break bones, but, and the idea is not that you break bones of the law, you go out break bones and you try to hurt someone else. But you have the right to defend yourself. And people, if they think they could just run over you, they're just gonna run over you. So they have to know not to mess with you. But at the same time, I, so I don't submit to the idea that you cannot harm someone because I have the right to do that. And if someone tries me, I have the right by law to do this and I will and I have the ability to do it as a trained soldier. But that is not the point. So I'm not gonna sit on a little high horse and say, never slap somebody, never punch somebody, never kill an ant. That is hypocritical. We need to move beyond the language of violent and nonviolent. And we need to look to talk about actions and reactions by the actors and the recipients and have a more complex way than the, than the, than the linear way that we discuss it now. Okay, so let's come back to policing. Um, as you cast your eyes forward mm -hmm. and we, we sort of went past community policing, uh, how do you propose, what, if, you had to, if you had control, if you had the ability to influence the, the type of policing. Let's say, let's, if, if you want, you can even take in the Dominican context because we see behavior of police in Dominica in the last year, two years, um, that are not exactly what we imagine good policing to be. What system would you develop that would work well in, in the 21st century in our, in our current environment? Well, the system I'll develop in Dominica, as I have advised, um, and the system I'll develop there is the same system I developed in Chicago, the same system I developed in the world. 
And that is understanding from the history of policing that there are many blind spots. Number one, we need to, we have separations of powers for reasons. And the idea that the Minister of National Security sits over the police chief that sits over the rest of the police system and that there is not enough of separation of power between the judiciary and the legislative and so on. We have things to, we have things to question about who has ultimate authority over the police, including even funding the police. And you hear people are talking about defunding the police and if they defund the police, they have control over. So that means to say those who fund the police and if defunding the police could lead to the police doing the right thing as far as the citizens see, maybe the, maybe the citizens need to fund the police. And maybe the citizens need to hold the police accountable so that when the state, because Anthony, and this is why a lot of times I get in trouble because I have an absolute high level of cynicism about people in power and power structures. Because most of the time bad things happen very badly is because people in power and power structures aid and abet and they can tweak the law and the rules to, to unfairly get away with it. That is why I'm so critical about people in power and power structures because, uh, because it, it is human nature, but sometimes it, it, it is callous. So part of this is that we have to watch how the policing falls under the structure of potentially being corrupted by police or being corrupted by other people whose racism, sexism, other isms are not sufficiently uh, um, uh, um, developed to protect the interests of the common public. And sometimes, in fact, the law is not only supposed to be feared, the law is supposed to have the appearance of being feared, right? And, and, and the law is not only, the police are not only there, and criminal law is developed not only to save you from harming others, but to save you from harming yourself. So that means to say that the police themselves need to be able to save a prime minister from corrupting a nation, need to save a minister of national security from using his, his, his purview as a minister of national security or a, or a minister of law or whomever from using their positions to break the law. The police supposed to be able to have enough latitude to help save people to save from themselves. To do that, they need to have a separate structure. And they need to have an oversight that is mixed of people like police officers, other citizens, youth, and across the community. And they need to control the purse. Here's what I said to McCarthy Gibson, the first black police chief in Buffalo, New York. I said, Mac, if I were to change the algorithm of policing, I was a soldier and I understand that we like furlough, we like big guns, we like cars, we like all that good stuff. Suppose I were to tell you that promotion, furlough, and even weaponry and sophistication would be given to your police department based on the extent to which they, they significantly reduce violence and show better police tolerance. If that were the incentive, Max sat back in his chair in Buffalo, New York on Franklin Street and he said to be dark, then you'd have the most peaceful police force <laughs> because our guys would be getting more pay and time off for showing peace. They would not be trying to call something a murder or call something a certain, well, a murder is a murder, but they would not be trying to get a case so they can go to court to get overtime. They'd be trying to work on peacefulness because what is benefiting them is a peaceful community and the algorithm for their pay would be based on a peaceful community. And the algorithm for their follow, follow would be based on that. I was interviewing a police officer who now works hired by me. I won't call his name on a, on a police department in the Chicago area. 
And I said to him, how would you deal with police corruption? We spoke about it. And I said to him, Doc, suppose I said that 1% of police officers are good, right? So if I, if I say like, like, like you know, there, there, there's just 1% of police officers that are good and 99% of police officers were bad. And if I pulled that 1% of police officers and I created a program Instead of saying to the 99 police officers, stop being racist or whatever, I created an award for that 1% of officers and I created incentives for exemplary policing. I promoted those police officers and I gave them pay based on their status as exemplary police officers and they're open to win awards. And I called in a bunch of police officers to train them how to be exemplary police officers in good conduct. We know a lot about police misconduct, but how much do we know about police good conduct? I said, if I made police good conduct an award, I gave this person a pay, I gave them a furlough, and I gave them vacation, and I took their family, gave them a trip to New York or whatever, whatever, what would happen? He said, Doc, you would have the most well-behaved police department. <laughs> so I'm telling you, we need to rethink. We need to outsmart this issue. We need to outsmart this because we need police, but we do not need police as it is now. In Dominica, I say the era of community policing, the window has closed. Because what we have, what we need now is not community policing. We need policing, policing. The biggest enemies to community policing in Dominica are the police officers. Even, even on the level, I'm not necessarily saying it is the chief, but it could exist on the level of the chief that may not embody community policing so much. He'll embody it in idea, but maybe not embody it so much in practice because he knows of the extra drama he has to face with the other police officers that resist him and it's probably not worth his time. Because I know the police chief in Dominic, I trained him in community policing. I know he's a very good logistical police officer. He's a very good police officer. He has the right thing in mind, but he has to deal with some certain logistics. So to me, what is the answer? The answer is not right now to me um, advancing community policing because community policing has failed terribly and actually it's time for a new era. And that new era that I'm calling for is a new era of what I call pisology policing. Pisology policing. Pisology policing. Okay. What is pisology? I define pisology as the science and practice of making peace profitable. So policing will be the science using data and information and the practice of making peace profitable. Profit does not mean just to make money. Profit simply means that if you deposit something and get more of it back. So Anthony, if I say good morning to you and your wife, I say good morning to you and your wife and your friend, the three of you might say good morning back to me. I said good morning to one person, I got three good mornings back. If I treat you with respect, you treat me back with respect. So, but profit exists on eight major dimensions. Number one is cultural. Number two is economic. It's, it, it is environmental. It is physiological. It's political, it's psychological, it's social, and it's spiritual. So what I am saying is that the first thing that we need to recalibrate policing to in this new era is that police officers need to see themselves as embodiments of creating a more peaceful and just society. And they need to first examine within themselves the extent to which their isms, their, their limitations, and their own persona is well enough aligned so they can reverberate and they can reflect that inner peace that they have within themselves to help create a society that is more peaceful. Even while they're wearing guns, even while they're wearing body cameras. And we need to incentivize police actions, police training, and, and citizens' 
um, relations with the police to the extent to which the algorithm is based on the production of peacefulness. Because police officers do not want to get killed. The family don't want them to get killed. They probably didn't want to kill people. But because we do not have the algorithm calculated to let them find the peace within themselves and to allow to create an atmosphere of peace beyond them, we have this problem. And a lot of times police officers go in hurt. They go in there traumatized and all that. And the trauma and hurt and the private life problems they have oftentimes relate to others. So we need to make policing be more calibrated to creating a more peaceful society, a society where people feel at ease based on who they are and how they are. And you are not going to have peace if you do not have proper justice. But you are not going to have proper justice if you do not have peace, because trying to get justice and chaos is not going to happen. So this is what I'm calling for peaceology policing. The era of community policing is gone. It has failed before because even the judge for issue, there probably those are training community policing. And I believe we have the algorithm wrong in that regard. There's more I can talk about the basis of pisology policing and I can ask, tell you about the major questions, but I will just pause now in case you have any comments you want to give back. I'm very curious about that concept, pisology policing. Right. And and then you, you, you place it side by side well, law, because we hear a lot of law and order, and law and order in itself um, just doesn't connote anything pleasant. Um, order sounds like you, you're forcing somebody to behave the way you want them to behave. But if we talk about law and peace, and then we understand that it's law and peace, then, then it, it changes the, the, the perspective of of what is the purpose of the law enforcement. The law enforcement is to achieve peace, not to achieve order. Because if you have peace, you automatically have, have order. So and you see the power, you see the power of me as an intellectual introducing a new concept. And see how in the short time you have turned this around. Can you imagine if I spoke to a bunch of police officers around that and they start to use their brilliance to start to say, Oh, how can I, instead of just focusing on law and order, how can I focus on law and peace? And I'm going to, I will give you credit for this, but I'm writing this. And, I, and let me let you know that you are the first media personality in the world that has had any lengthy discussion of peaceology policing. I have not, I spoke yesterday, I spoke about it last week a little bit with Sam, but this is the most lengthy uh, explanation of peaceology policing that the world has gotten. So you can you know, tap Sam, Sam on the shoulder. <laughs> no, look, because it's very curious, and I would love to have you back, and we can spend the whole hour talking about that, because, uh, and we can talk about it in the Dominican context, we can talk about it in the Caribbean context, we can talk about it on a, on a world context, because where this conversation started tonight was where did police come from? Mm -hmm. and, and we talk about it in the UK and so on, it came from guards, uh, and there's always that violent aspect to it. In the US, it came from slave catchers and, and that sort of thing. So we, we, we arrive now at the junction where people are calling to dismantle, defund the police. And it's not because people don't recognize the, the function of the police, because even black people who in America who have been subject to such brutality from the police still call the police when there's a threat. So, so there's nobody that, that doesn't recognize the purpose of some type of, 
of, of body or some type of force that helps to protect them. How, however, it, it, we need to we need to cut the past. And we as black people, we have that experience where we have been lost in this part of the world. A lot of us have been lost for generations because we were they successfully separated us from our past. And so we have to put the police through that same experience that black people have had and, and cut the police off from that history of where they came from and go forward. And therefore I really like um, that new concept that you're postulating. And it seems so practical. And a lot of times solutions to complex problems is simple. And, and I think you, you placed it right. Let's, we're not doing away with the law, but we're doing away with enforcement to create order. We, we, we adopting enforcement with the objective of creating peace. Mm -hmm. and, 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 so, and so as we wrap up this conversation, I, I, I want you um, to know that I would love to have you back to explore that a little bit more. Um, I think our, our audience got a really treat having you for over an hour. And, and so I'm going to give you the opportunity, just the same way I give you the opportunity at the start to, to just um, express your perspective and to lay the foundation for the conversation. I'm giving you the freedom now to, to do the same thing, to wrap up the discussion and, and to leave the audience with, with the strong message that you came tonight, that peace doesn't mean weakness. Peace simply means um, as, as aspiring to a higher order. Yes. Uh, and and uh, as I do this, I won't be lengthy with it, but some of the, the, the viewers have asked questions. And what mm -hmm. does it mean then? We talk about violence to have a person, a, handcuff, a person handcuffed and being treated wrongly on the, on, on the ground. Um, we have the, um, um, uh, Chris Bugunu asked, what does it mean to, uh, to protect and serve with the concept of peaceology? And say, I, I agree that peaceology should be introduced uh, to the economy. It's like learning your MOS in the military and so on. So, so the idea is that whenever we, so let's talk about force. Let's not talk about violence, let's talk about force. And force is the ability to get your will even at the resistance of others, right? So if the door is hard and people are put, I have to use force. I have to use something that is a, a, a higher than the level of resistance of others. So there's legitimate, legitimate force and illegitimate force, okay? So that thing that we will, used to call violence Let's call it illegitimate force, right? But right. we don't have the right to use force because if someone's pushing up against us, we shouldn't just let them kill us. So that's I'm saying, let us have a different type of language. So yes, the police may have to use force to pull the person's handband and handcuff them. But if you have your, their, your, your, your knee on their neck while they are already in submission, this is really not legitimate use of force. And it is an infraction, okay? So that is how we can talk about this thing without even using the word violence, right? Uh, and Chris Bogunu talks about how do we talk about uh, uh, and peaceology, how we how we talk about the issue of 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 of, of serving and protect. Uh, and again, I will not say that peaceology is not is moving from law and order to law and peace. It it will be order, but the idea is that peace is such a high order that it takes everything else under it. Exactly. Justice, mm -hmm. order, 
um, 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 anti-racism, anti-sexism, all of that falls under. Because for you to have a peaceful existence, for you to have a state of existence where you are as much as possible not worried about your existence as a person and right. you have a positive and a favorable anticipation of your future, that is the definition of peace. So if we have business, and I said to the prime minister when I given the proposal, the pathology proposal I gave a few years ago, that let's make peace profitable in Dominica. Let's make, let's go to make a peaceful nature isle. And Anthony, right now I'm in the process of purchasing 18 acres of land in my village in Trafalgar. That, and I, Ronald Charles just um, um, yesterday incorporated my company uh, called Peaceology Acres. We are moving the world's headquarters of Peaceology to Trafalgar, Dominica, where I grew up. And we'll be developing the Peaceology Park in Trafalgar. We'll be employing people in the community. We can talk to, about that on the show. Peaceology policing, people will have to come to Dominica to learn Peaceology policing and to live some money and to live some support and to live their goodness and to learn how peace, why Dominicans are so peaceful. And I will explain to you why uh, Peaceology was born in this village of Trafalgar, but Peaceology continues to develop because the one common denominator, and I won't give away my book that I'm writing on whose victory, a lot of people will be surprised. So I will live, I won't break the suspense. But a lot of what I saw in Dominica of how terrible things could have been and on the actions of the people on the ground, the actions of the prime minister, the actions of the little lady on the ground, the, act, the actions of the minister, of the, the opposition leader, the, the actions of the, the, the warm yell in the shop, all of these continue to explain how peaceful Dominica is. And if we're able to capture that and create an economy of peace and, and develop uh, uh, an industry of peace, health, peace and health tourism, man, that'd be so beautiful. So, so what I want to introduce to the world and what we need to introduce to the world because pisology belongs to us. Pisology began in the village of Trafalgar, in the Rosso Valley, in the island of Dominica, in the Caribbean, in the world. And Chicago has, I have suffered a lot in Chicago. My building was, 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 was that I wanted to develop pisology. It's called the Peace Palace on the South Side of Chicago on 115 in Michigan. I lost about $50,000 trying to help to develop pisology there. Uh, the people didn't want it, the politicians didn't want it, they vandalized my building, whatever. Um, but I, the Lord has given me the vision to move Peaceology Center to Dominica and it's going to be based in Trafalgar. So we can talk about that. But what I want to say is that we have to outsmart this issue. When the social sciences began, we began, we, we used science to understand the world and to, to, to control the world. But when the, after the French Revolution, we didn't understand how to use science to help protect society. So, so sociology and those other sciences were born. And since sociology was born, we've been focusing on how to solve problems. And the pendulum, Anthony, got stuck on this problem solving. So, so what I'm talking about is that not only do we have to just talk about new policing, we need to have a different way and a different question of how we arranged in the world. And that is that I, am, I created a structure and epistemology. And by the way, let me tell people, and you guys can take notes. There is the Rutledge Companion to Peace and Conflict Study. The Rutledge Companion to Peace and Conflict Study. You guys know that Rutledge is a major publisher of, of, of pieces. They have a Rutledge Companion to Peace and Conflict Study. And I just published a chapter, I think it's chapter 21, on making peace profitable. That you, those of you who want to learn about peaceology, you can get that from the Rutgers Companion to Peace and Conflict Study. Making and I have another chapter that's coming out soon and some other works. But let me just say this as I wind up, that we are going to engage in a paradigm shift. And I know because I'm a black man, 
And I know because I'm a little boy from Trafalgar, some people may not want to listen to me because it's probably better coming from a white person with a degree from Harvard. Well, I have a degree from the University of, of, of Chicago that even ranks higher than Harvard in terms of sociology, but let's put that aside. What I am leading the world to is to move away from the, from the mindset that in order for us to solve problems, we have to study the problems and we have to find something in the problem to use it to kill it. That runs a verse of human nature. Instead, what we have done, we have asked the question, why are things so bad? Why are there so many corrupt police and brutal police officers? And then when we get the answer, we want to finally use the logic to solve the problem. But in pisology, and I move from social problems, I create something called social promise. And in pisology and in social promise, we ask, why are there so many problems? But then we ask, understanding why there are so many problems, why aren't the problems even worse? Let that blow your wig off. In spite of how much police brutality we have, why isn't there even more police brutality against blacks? Some people may be angry, and some people may think it is not the right time to ask this question, but I beg to defer. This is your homework, folks, for the next time Anthony and I come. <laughs> Certainly, we're going to do this again. There's a lot of sexual molestation. There's a lot of rape happening. There's a lot of teenage pregnancy. And we know the reasons for that. But why isn't there even more sexual molestation? Why isn't there even more rape? And my submission to you, my friend, is the same way that we ask, why isn't there even more police brutality against Black and Blacks in the United States? We get to learn that there are some things that are working well that are being drunk. Why is the tail wagging the dog? And I'm not on this bandwagon that most police officers are good. That's not good enough. It's just a distraction for wicked people sometimes to not focus on what needs to be done. But we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. So what I'm saying now, it is a moment for us to outsmart this issue. And in our bright Caribbean minds, in this village of Trafalgar where I drank this water and bring food for Maloki and did things uh, in my village as a young peaceful person that has allowed me to have the inspiration and work with many people, I want to introduce the world to peaceology. And we want them to go to Dominica to learn about making peace profitable. And we want Dominica to be the most peaceful nation because we are in Dominica the most peaceful people in the world. The figures just not have yet shown it. So this is what Anthony I'm saying. And I'm saying to not let people trick you and believe that because you look like me, that and because people like that look like me have been killed unjustly, that it cannot be our day to turn this thing around. And this is just what I'm saying. Remember, peaceology is the science and practice of making peace profitable. Remember, peaceology belongs to all of us. And I believe peaceology is the answer to help make our world a better place. And we'll elaborate on that the next time around. Thank you. And that's and that's a great place to live it. Um, listeners, I think we had a treat tonight. My guest was uh, Dr. Peter Senjan. And we were talking about policing, but but in a context of the turmoil that we're facing right now, uh, in a context of looking forward to what's what's going to happen in the, in, in the next in the remainder of the 21st century. And so, Dr. Sergio, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your your sharing your experience and your depth of knowledge, your intellect. Um, you're obviously a thinking person, and and so there is always room for you on this weekend interview, because that's what I like. Um, I like those types of conversation because we get all the other conversations everywhere else. And, and so let's let, you have, you have an invitation to come back. Let's talk about 
about peace as an objective, peace as an enterprise, because if you talk about profit, then, then it's an industry. enterprise. And, um, and let's see who are the allies and the partners that we can get in society that will, that will help us to move forward. I like the last point that you made, that even in a bad situation, if you find the reasons why the bad situation is not worse, then you could expand that aspect and reduce the bad situation. And, and so that concept well, is a very neat idea. Um, there's black brutality, but there could be more black brutality. We had thousands of police on the road with thousands of black unarmed people in front of them. There could have been even more brutality. Why wasn't there more brutality? If we can answer that question, then we can, we can expand the, the space where there's no brutality and shrink the space where there is brutality. So I, I love the way where you left it. My listeners, we will do this again um, next week, Wednesday. And um, let's say thank you again to Dr. Sejan. And don't forget, tomorrow at 10 a.m., we'll be airing an interview with Patrick Roland John, the first Prime Minister of Dominica. And don't forget, also on June 23rd, Saturday, June 23rd, Annette Philip is having a Zoom um, poetry mixer. Um, so all of you know that I always advocate books and reading. I love poetry. I love I love books. I love prose. Um, let's let's organize that. I'll give you more information on that as we go along. So I want to thank you, listeners, and and wish you all the best for the rest of the week and have a great weekend. Stay safe and continue to exercise um, social distancing. Good night, Doc. Good night. Thank you so much, Anthony, for for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you.